Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. President Biden is inching up in the polls as Democrats had good primaries with a motivated base and centrist candidates expected to perform well later this year. Biden made good on a campaign promise and delivered a plan for college loan relief of $10,000 for individuals making less than $125,000 and couples less than $250,000, estimated to cost about $300 billion, raising concerns whether the plan will drive cuts to government spending elsewhere, including defense. Russian leader Vladimir Putin ordered the country's army to be increased by about 137,000 soldiers, although analysts question whether the troops will be recruited from, given the challenges in recruiting in the wake of heavy Russian casualties during the course of the war. The move comes in the wake of the reported killing of Daria Dugan, the daughter of Alexander Dugan, the nationalist fascist ideologue who has long advised Putin, uh, including to crush Ukrainian democracy and independence. Moscow found the culprit within hours, apparently a Ukrainian assassin traveling with her 12-year-old daughter and their cat, who escaped to Estonia in the immediate aftermath uh, of the bombing of the vehicle. Uh, Ukraine dismisses the allegation entirely, saying it's not to blame, blaming instead Russian security services on interspecies warfare. Moscow increased strikes on Ukraine and twice interrupted the power to the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, renewing fears of a nuclear incident at Europe's largest nuclear facility, something we've been discussing for many weeks. In an extraordinary show of solidarity, outgoing British Prime Minister Boris Johnson visited Kiev to celebrate the country's 31st anniversary of its independence from the Soviet Union and Russia, and also marking the six-month anniversary of the start of the war. President Biden authorized another $4 billion in U.S. military aid to Ukraine to include more strike uh, and air defense missiles, drones, uh, and other capabilities with more capabilities perhaps uh, on the way, which our our group can illuminate. uh, In what some see as a message, Seoul ordered some $2 billion in components from Russia for a nuclear power plant project in Egypt. Uh, This after South Korea failed to criticize China for its campaign to intimidate Taiwan after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi uh, visited Taipei. Uh, The two moves are the latest that are prompting some in Washington to question whether South Korea remains a reliable U.S. ally uh, where the United States would have to deploy troops in the event of North Korean mischief. This as North Korea continues to loom as a threat, even as attention shifts to a more assertive China. And Uh, the constructive role a new quad of Israel, India, the UAE, and the United States can play in the region as Iran nuclear talks continue and Turkey and Israel have a rapprochement. Uh, Joining us to discuss all of this and more, which is a very, very ample agenda, are Dr. Patrick Cronin, who holds the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, who is now affiliated with the Center for a New American Security and uh, co-hosts the Brussels Sprouts podcast for anybody interested in the ongoings uh, within the Atlantic Alliance, uh, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. Everybody, welcome. Uh, Michael, welcome back. Uh, Good to have you on. Uh, and thanks all for joining us. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. 
Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and we're a proud Farnborough International Airshow Media Partner, uh, where our coverage of Britain's leading airshow was sponsored by Farnborough International and Leonardo DRS. Uh, welcome again, all. Michael, again, welcome back uh, and start us off, right? Congress doesn't have many more legislative days in town before they decamp uh, for their districts and the hard races uh, to come. Bring us up to speed on the continuing resolution, National Defense Authorization Act and appropriations. Well, you're correct. Uh, we have exactly five weeks until uh, the government runs out of funding uh, and we reach the end of the fiscal year. And two of those weeks, Congress isn't even in session. So in a less than three week period, Congress is going to have a lot to do. And as of now, uh, negotiations on this on spending bills and top lines haven't even begun yet. Uh, so as a result, we're really nowhere on conferencing the National Defense Authorization Act and uh, the Defense Appropriations Bill. And as you know, too, the NDAA has not even found floor time in the Senate, and there's no guarantee that it will find floor time uh, in September. Uh, but as I mentioned before, if it does not get floor time in September, I do expect the authorizers to at least begin pre-conferencing the bill uh, in September. Uh, now, you know, the Republicans would like to wait on a budget deal until after the election because they still feel confident that they will at least be in control of the House and will have better uh, leverage and negotiating power on a, on a top line budget deal after the election. The Democrats, however, would like to have a budget deal done uh, before the election. Regardless of when a budget deal is done, they're still going to need a CR in September. And I would anticipate uh, probably two CRs this year, one that would take us till after Thanksgiving with the hope of then passing another short-term CR to Christmas to give them time to finish up uh, getting the appropriations bills done. Uh, I, at this point, I'm still confident that it will get done because both the chairman and the ranking member uh, in the uh, on the Senate Appropriations Committee, Patrick Leahy and Richard Shelby, are both retiring uh, at the end of this year. I don't think that they want this to be their legacy, that they had a CR uh, behind them, that they want to get this done. Uh, there are some things that will complicate the CR. I mean, Schumer did make a promise uh, to Joe Manchin uh, to include a provision governing uh, energy project permitting. Uh, that's something that some Democrats will oppose uh, and something that some Republicans may oppose as well. So there, and there's also going to be the issue, too, that we've had last year. Uh, what are the frameworks for the negotiation going to be? Talking about the, the policy riders, again, the preservation of the Hyde Amendment. Uh, but as painful as this is, they always get the good. And at this point, uh, I am uh, optimistic that we will get there. I want to take you to the question of primaries uh, now. Biden surged uh, in the polls, gaining some five points, as well as with independents. Uh, and some uh, you know, in the White House, Democrats and even independents uh, sense that there is a change in vector here. Um, and, and certainly some Republicans uh, as, as well. The president made his first political stump speech in a long time uh, in Rockville uh, yesterday. He called on Democrats, independents and principled Republicans to stand together uh, up to a Trump-dominated uh, UAP uh, GOP uh, that you know he claims, and I think some would agree, has become semi-fascist in its motives and, and tactics. Uh, you watch the primaries very closely. What what do they tell us uh, about what the election outlook uh, looks like? Because you know, I mean, the great attribute Republicans have is they back their they tend to back their candidates, whereas you know Democrats are mad at the president, and we're going to talk about student loan relief in a minute. They're mad at the president for not going far enough for what even members of his own party are calling a bad policy bill, right? So what's what's the outlook for the primaries? What did you see? And does it change anything? And how, if so, how uh, in November? So uh, there's a lot of mixed messages coming out of the primary. There's a lot of data that people will draw their own conclusions from, from the, that data. And it, the information continues to pour in. Even at the beginning of our show, I just got an email update from the NRCC, because believe it or not, they're still counting votes in Alaska. Uh, but with 97% of the votes in, it looks like Sarah Palin is going to be headed to, to Congress next year. 
Uh, so she is ahead of her uh, Republican opponent by uh, but just over three points. So I don't see how he's going to, um, to close that gap. And it's likely the Republicans hold on to the seat uh, in, in Alaska. Uh, but, you know, there, the primaries on Tuesday, there's a lot of information to glean from, especially the ones in New York and, and Florida. And, and there's good news and bad news here, depending on, you know, what side you're on. Uh, there were a lot of really wacky, crazy candidates that lost, but they came very close uh, to winning. Uh, uh, there was a, a races, uh, for example, in uh, New York, uh, open seat in New York 23, where Carl Palladino came very close uh, to winning that open seat, but although the Nick Langworthy uh, did beat him. But uh, Carl Palladino was backed by Elise Stefanik, who's a member of the House Republican leadership. And Palladino is a guy who's said publicly that Merrick Garland should be executed and that Hitler is the kind of leader that we need today. Uh, so I think it was a bad look uh, to some degree for a member of the Republican leadership to be uh, you know, backing uh, a candidate like that. Uh, there also was a race uh, down in Florida 13, which is Charlie Crist's seat, which the Republicans feel that they are going to pick up. And the candidate that did win that race is a Trump backed uh, candidate and somebody that Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, also campaigned for. And she's uh, somebody who loves to pose regularly uh, for pictures on social media, carrying a variety of assault weapons and other weapons. So, uh, and then there was a candidate down in Florida as well that came very close uh, to upsetting Daniel Webster, uh, who is an incumbent congressman, uh, who is a self-described uh, proud Islamophobe who describes uh, uh, you know, Islamic faith as a cancer. So there's a lot of, even though some of these people lost, it says a lot about where the Republican electorate is. But the key race was really in, in New York, uh, the open seat uh, that left by Antonio Delgado, who resigned to run for lieutenant governor. That was an open seat that, you know, this one we could lean a lot of information from, it's just Republican against Democrat. And there, a lot of people felt the Republicans were going to pick up this open seat, and they did not. Uh, the Democrat right. won this seat in a close race. And that was very interesting because the Democrat campaigned a lot on abortion rights, with the Republican campaign on crime, attacking Biden, inflation, and the economy. And uh, the Democrat won on that message. And that's sending shockwaves throughout the, the political stratosphere. And if you look at voter registration now, women are outpacing men at a pace of four to one. And that should be something, too, that the, the Republicans should be concerned about. Now, Republicans look at the right track, wrong track, you know, as well as Biden's approval rating, and 70% of America believes that we're on the wrong track. And Republicans think that's their ticket uh, to winning the House and Senate. I, I don't necessarily agree because I think a lot of people look that we're on the wrong track, might say, well, we're on the wrong track because of we're losing abortion rights, because there's gun violence in this country. There's a lot of reasons people may think we're on the wrong track. It doesn't necessarily lead us uh, to where Biden is. And whereas the Republicans were projected to win about 25 to 30 seats in the House, that projection now is around you know uh, 10 to 15 seats. But we're only in August. We have a long way to go. Who knows what the economy will look like, what inflation will look like, what will happen in September and October. Uh, but I do believe that uh, the Republicans will pick up the House. It's a question by how much I think it'll be closer than people think. But the Senate still, as I said previously, really could go either way. Really quickly, talk, us about, talk to us about the uh, student uh, debt relief uh, and the implications uh, broadly politically, but also potentially on the defense bud uh, the budget. Right? I mean, the criticism of the president is, this plan is not a policy that reduces college tuition costs. Indeed, there's a concern that it's just going to increase college tuition costs uh, when you cover this, even if it's well, well-intentioned from a policy standpoint, it's bad, which is the reason why some centrist uh, uh, Democrats uh, are joining Republicans in uh, criticizing. And progressives are saying this doesn't go far enough, uh, right? So it's possible the president doesn't get a benefit from this. And then the GOP is adding, oh my God, now you know, you're going to, um, you know, put you know further pressure uh, on uh, the defense budget. 
in defense of the president, he maintains, look, if we make more opportunity for more people, it improves their economic position, and then it improves the national uh, economic condition more broadly. You know, sort of give us a sense on this on this debate and, and how defense is getting caught up in it and how it's likely to play out. Yeah, you're correct. I mean, the president is getting attacked on the left, right and center uh, for this. And as you mentioned earlier, I mean, he is canceling student loan debt, you know, $20,000 in debt cancellation for Pell Grant recipients, uh, $10,000 cancellation for non-Pell Grant recipients, again, for people who make less than $125,000 or couples who make less than $250,000. Uh, you know, the, the president of the NAACP came out and bashed this uh, plan, says it, it doesn't do enough uh, and leaves back Black people behind. Uh, we've had a lot of swing state Democrats who are in tough races, like Tim Ryan running for Senate in Ohio, Michael Bennett in Colorado, Senator Cortez Mastro in Nevada, all come out being critical uh, of this plan. You've had a lot of Democrats who served in previous administrations. Um, like um, uh, Jason Furman, who was a uh, top economist for uh, President Obama, came out saying that pouring roughly half a trillion dollars of gasoline on the inflationary fire that is already burning is reckless. Uh, Larry Summers, who's the Treasury Secretary under, under Bill Clinton, uh, you know, said student loan debt relief uh, uh, is spending that raises demand and increases inflation. Uh, so, and, and then, you know, I think, you know, as, as you mentioned, there is um, and the question of uh, what's the implications of defense. Look, this complicates budget deals too, because the Republicans are going to say this is more non-defense domestic discretionary spending, right? And they're going to want to offset that with increases in defense spending, right? Or to be a deeper cuts in the non-defense domestic discretionary spending that the Democrats want. Uh, so it complicates it. And I would also argue that this also makes it harder for military recruiting, right? I mean, we already have we're already a situation now where about 75% of the youth in this country do not qualify for military service because either they're too fat, they're on drugs, they have mental health problems, they have criminal records, or they can't read or write. But a major recruiting tool for the military is these college benefits, even though I think we can argue that some of them are over generous. But if a lot of people feel, well, I can get free college without joining the military, it will strain a military recruiting even more. And then lastly, I think there's a big question here is whether the president has even the legal authority uh, to cancel the debt. I mean, the president himself uh, last year said, I don't think I have the authority to do it by signing a pen. And Nancy Pelosi also said last year, people think that the president of the United States has the power for debt forgiveness. He does not. It has to be an act of Congress. And the secretary of education under Obama also said that the, right. he does not likely have the authority to do this. So I think we're going to see this tied up in the courts for, for a while. But I think I will also say this. If it is found that the president does have this authority, I think there'll be pressure on him to do it again. Uh, for, because this only takes care of a small group of people that are actually a large group, 43 million Americans. What about the people who take out student loans after this? And I wouldn't be surprised to see progressives, you know, a year or two from now start saying, well, maybe we should be canceling credit card debt and mortgage debt for right. poor people as well. So I think this is really lets the cat out of the bag here. So Dove, uh, let me go to you. I mean, we've got a lot of international stuff to talk about, but from uh, your sense on the vector of the races and on the budget, I uh, just wanted to get your quick take uh, before we we go over to Jim, uh, to Patrick, and to you for the international portion of the conversation. Go ahead. Well, first of all, on this last point of uh, student loans, one of the things that I'm already hearing from uh, sort of middle-class folks is we're going to be the ones that are going to be hit by this. Our kids decided not to apply to expensive schools because they could never pay off their loans. Now, all of a sudden, they discovered they're stuck with loans while everybody else is getting off the hook and can apply to more expensive schools. And oh, by the way, the universities are going to raise their tuition. So it might not even help people out. But even more 
concerning, I think, for Democrats, and this is why I think folks like Ryan have spoken out the way they have, is the Republicans are telling anybody who is not a college graduate, you're going to pay taxes to support these college graduates. Of course, to some extent, that already goes on, but this emphasizes that point even more. And, it, and remember, a lot of the people that the Republicans are addressing happen to be in the base, but there are also independents as well who I think are going to be very resentful. I think if Biden had come in and said anybody under 50 or 75,000 gets this break, I don't think there would have been the kind of hiccup that he's finding now. But a quarter million dollars is still a lot of money for an awful lot of people in this country. Uh, where, where the median income, I think, is like 67,000 or something like that, right? I mean, so they kind of picked exactly. a tough number. Exactly. Now, in terms of the primaries, I think one to watch is, I think it's the 10th in New York, where these, uh, this fellow Goldman won, but he beat a progressive by not very much. And looks like she's going to run under the Workers' Party label. And it'll be very interesting to see whether in fact, uh, once the uh, progressives coalesce in New York, they can overturn uh, this primary result. And then, of course, there's the Jerry Nadler uh, victory in New York. Uh, and many people are saying, you know, he's an old style Democrat and he won. And he, uh, of course, he was up against another old style Democrat. But the fact is that even in New York City, at least at this point, the progressives are on the back foot. Um uh thanks very much for that uh dove uh i want to move on and bring jim uh into the conversation and patrick as well um uh jim uh russia increasing uh vladimir putin moving to increase the country's armed forces by 137,000. i shouldn't have said about uh in the introduction right it is uh the definitive number i think it raises the military overall to 1.15 million we are uh in a stalemate um you know daria dugan somehow for somebody who died in a or apparently or reportedly died in a catastrophic uh, blaze and a car explosion um, was given an open casket uh, funeral. Very convenient uh, for Putin to raise, uh, uh, you know, troop uh, levels. Zaporizhia now is being targeted, right? An important, uh, you know, conduit for Ukrainians in any future uh, offensive, uh, even though we're, we're, we're stalled uh, now. W what is, the blowing up of Daria Dugan, if that's even real, right? Some people are questioning whether it's even real uh, or whether or not it was in, uh, you know, re even related uh, to the Ukraine war, even though the Russians are doing this, right, rather conveniently. Um, you know, we're, how does this, what does this do? And what does the fighting around Zaporizhia do? Because there are those who feel that, you know, the, the Russians are making this conflict nuclear without resorting to weapons, right? I mean, we were talking about whether there's a nuclear demonstration or, or some point, and then we had Chernobyl and then they got kicked out of Chernobyl. Where, where are we right now? Where are we going? Does this troop uh, boost make a difference? And and does the U.S. arms package ultimately makes a difference or whether or not it's just we're, we are going to be at a stalemate period? Well, I think what these things uh, do is remind us of, of the way the Russians uh their way of war, uh, whether it's the nuclear facility, whether it's the bombing of, of the, the daughter of that propagandist. I mean, this is these kinds of things we have not seen in many, many, many years in terms of as an element of warfare. We are we're seeing things that uh, remind us how brutal this Russia uh, Ukraine campaign will be as far into the future. Um, it's the, in the interesting thing about the nuclear site is 
We've not had a war uh, in the past where we've had nuclear facilities appear on the battlefield, that they have been part of the battlefield, that they've been used in the tactics of one side or another. World War II is about as close as we can get to something that is familiar in terms of Ukraine and Russia. Obviously, they didn't have nuclear energy facilities back then, but we're now learning how those can be used. And so we are where those those two incidents that you mentioned, they both remind us of what we're dealing with. But I, I think one thing to focus on, though, is both the the Russian increase in their forces, as well as the package that the Biden administration put out a couple of days ago, show that both sides are now doubling down. Uh, there's This is not, uh, the, the package that uh, Biden put out a couple of days ago shows that the U.S. is thinking long-term, that the U.S. is signaling long-term support. Uh, I, I thought I heard Colin Call, uh, the Undersecretary of Defense, uh, as he was uh, providing details on the package, talking about how U.S. planners are sitting with Ukraine planners and trying to figure out what the Ukraine force structure should look like in the coming years, uh, you know, depending on the scenarios they may face. And so obviously the U.S. is trying to make sure that the Ukraine military is thinking ahead, planning ahead. Uh, and we have a better idea of the kind of support they may need in a year or two. So I think that I think the signal that came out of Washington was that we're behind you. And I was a signal to the Europeans as well that they needed to be behind for the long term as well to be behind uh, Ukraine. In terms of the Russian forces coming in, um, you know, we we were not so surprised by that. And I think what we should focus on is not necessarily the numbers as much as the kind of forces that are coming in. Um, from everything I've seen, a lot of their recruiting has been very difficult. They've had to go to, to the, the prisons and get uh, get uh, cons to come out and join the uh, join the fund in the Donbas. They've had to do a lot of unorthodox uh, methods to get uh, manpower uh, into the into the ranks, and that's not combat trained veterans. Uh, and so this hundred thirty seven thousand. Um, you know, or whatever the number will be that ends up in the Donbass, they won't be very well trained, uh, won't be very well trained troops. And uh, and we'll just see how they perform, uh, particularly if there's going to be some type of counteroffensive taking off. Last thing I'll say is that a lot of what we're seeing Ukraine do now is prepping the battlefield, if you will, for an, a counteroffensive. Uh, a lot of the logistic strikes that we've seen made in Crimea and elsewhere uh, whether it's through special forces or whether it's HIMARS hitting, hitting uh, places in the uh, Donbas area, it's, it's, it's cutting back on that logistics of uh, support for the Russians. And that's going to help them uh, if they get a uh, counteroffensive underway. Uh, and, and, you know, we, you know, the, we were always concerned and have discussed on this program repeatedly, you know, whether or not at some point the conflict goes nuclear and then the Russians invade Chernobyl. And so we thought, OK, that might be an opportunity. Uh, and now uh, Zaporizhia, we're fighting, is uh, is is going on around uh, the facility. Right. I mean, obviously, the Russians picked that because it's the corridor through which the Ukrainians want to come through. Uh, and then power was conveniently interrupted twice. Uh, to the to the facility, uh, forcing it to go on backup generators. Are we thinking as creatively, Jim, as we need to? Because it seems as though the Russian nefarious style of warfare continually sort of surprises us. You know, well, they wouldn't do that. And then we go, yeah, they would. I mean, do we need to be thinking fundamentally differently about how it is that we have to deal with the Russians? Because they have a tendency of going nefarious in ways that is sort of antithetical to what our approach to warfare is. 
Right. Well, I think I think in terms of creativity, uh, Ukraine, uh, along with U.S. and allied uh, contributions, have has been pretty creative on the whole. Uh, but beginning six months ago, uh, when this conflict started, uh, having to play a very weak hand, uh, Ukraine has done some pretty creative things. So in terms of of imagination on the battlefield, initiative on the battlefield. Uh, I think Ukraine, with a lot of help from the U.S. and other places, has done a pretty good job there. In terms of using brutal tactics, uh, in terms of, of, of doing things that stun the West, because we haven't seen this in many, many years, uh, you know, we're not doing that. Uh, Ukraine, you know, war is war. And if you went to, uh, to Ukraine and you went to the battlefield, I'm sure you'll see a lot of brutality uh, on both sides. Uh, you know, this is just the, the nature of things. Uh, but I think in terms of tactics, in terms of of what uh, Ukraine or what the West might advise Ukraine to do, I don't see us doing something like uh, hiding behind a nuclear facility uh, or blowing up the daughter of, a, of, the, of the propagandist. That's not where the U.S. and the West are in terms of advising Ukraine. Uh, and I think we we need to leave that kind of thing up to others. That's not the that's not our way of war. Uh, Dove, uh, let me let me just uh, go to you. Uh, go ahead. I'm totally with Jim. And and the longer this war goes on, the more there's going to be a problem for Russian artillery, which is the the heart of the, their whole approach to Ukraine. The reason I say that is they're burning through both their ammunition and their tubes much more quickly than people realize. There's been a a lot of British analysis of this. And frankly, they're not going to have much in the way of workable artillery tubes uh, within the year. And so the longer we can keep going, the more they're going to have a problem in that regard. The other observation really applies to us, not so much uh, Jim's point about our not playing dirty. I think he's absolutely right. We don't do some of those things. But I think too often in our war gaming, we assume the other guy is going to be just as upfront as we are. And I think one of the major lessons we're getting here is whether we're going to be against the Chinese or whoever, that the bad guy steals, lies, cheats, and does everything else. And we need to be ready for it. And unfortunately, we get caught by surprise much too often. I agree. Um, I, I think, I, I, I think I that's agree. Go yeah. ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead, Jim. Uh, I agree with Dove on that. Absolutely right. We ha we can't mirror image the other guy. And I think that was one of the problems uh, at the very beginning of this war. We mirror image the Russians uh, in a lot of ways, thinking they were 10 feet tall or at least taller than they are. They've proven to be uh, because we mirror image. We thought if, if, if our forces had gone through that kind of reform and the kind of work that the Russian troops had done since the Georgia invasion, then they would be taller than they are. And they absolutely were not. And I think I think in this case as well, Dove is right. The longer this war goes on, the more frustration Putin has, the more brutality we're going to see. And we got to be ready for that. It goes against our sensibilities, but we've got to know this is not, you know, counterterrorism or something like that. This is something that we haven't seen since World War II. Um, I uh, couldn't uh, agree uh, more with that. And indeed, right, I mean, even in uh, China war games, we see um, that somebody who's particularly creative, i.e. something that Russians or Chinese would do, there's there's almost an aversion to it. It's like, ooh, that was kind of dirty what they did, as opposed to saying no. I mean, if, if you were Chinese and Russian, you probably would do something uh, that outrageously 
uh, nefarious. Let me just quickly ask you guys really quickly, and Patrick, thank you for being patient, and we're going to come to you in, in, in just a second, and you're welcome to weigh in on this as well, right? Why is it that we're still doing a billion dollars in trade with Russia uh, per month? Associated Press reporting that. It's about half as much as what we were uh, doing. Um, we were in front of the White House, and two tourists asked me to take their picture in front of the White House, and they were Russian kids. Why are Russians still allowed to travel? I think Vladimir Zelensky makes a great point. Why, why, why are we not, you know, we're somehow trying to exempt the Russian people from this fight, just like we have a tendency of saying, oh, you know, our fight is with the Chinese Communist Party and it's not with the Chinese people. I mean, eventually, I mean, doesn't it event, don't you eventually have to say you're part of and live in a regime and we are going to isolate you and not just the oligarchs on this and we're going to have to interrupt trade and figure out a way to indemnify and protect ourselves in that process, because God forbid it happens with the Chinese, we're going to have to do the same thing. I mean, do, don't we need to have actually a little bit of a different approach? And why are we continuing to do this? Just real quick on this. And I know, uh, because I want to get to Patrick, and we've got a lot of questions to ask him as well. Jump in first and simply say this is back to the argument that I've been making all along. We'll get there. But we're just slow to get there. And I think part of the problem with this administration is it just takes a very long time to get its act together. So when you're talking about trade, you're not talking about DOD, for instance. And so uh, I think part of the problem is over at the White House that there needs to be more coordination and it should be done far more quickly than it's being done. Jim? I agree. I agree with Dove 100%. I wouldn't change a word he said. Uh, and uh, um, I, I should I should point out, right, the administration has, uh, in fairness, imposed enormous uh, economic penalties uh, on um, on on uh, Russia, uh, ultimately. Um, very quickly, uh, Patrick, thank you for being uh, so very patient with us. Give us kind of a roundup uh, of uh, Asia news. Uh, it has been a very busy week. Uh, I want to get to North Korea. Uh, in a moment, and then also address sort of a South Korean reliability question. I, I don't want to necessarily take us there, uh, but it is a question that, that is raised that sort of Seoul is, uh, whether it's with Russia, uh, might not be involved in a fight uh, between the United States and its allies uh, in the Pacific, just like China, you know, is, is very neutral toward China in some respects. Uh, and in war game after war game, they don't play a role, uh, in part because they know the Chinese can play the North Korean lever. And yet there is an expectation by Seoul the United States is going to be there in a North Korea uh, scrape, um, uh, ultimately, and, and even have Japan be on the side of the United States trying to help uh, South Korea out, even if that help might not necessarily be as welcome uh, by Seoul, in which case, right, it becomes a liability, given that the Chinese can unleash the North Korean uh, demon at, at the right time to sort of split U.S. forces. Let's start sort of give us kind of a roundup of key headlines. Uh, and then I want to get your view on the South Korea issue. And then obviously the North Korea issue, which is you wrote eloquently in the Straight Times, we should be be focused on. Take it away. Well, Bago, um, Taiwan continues to be the major flashpoint in Asia that has uh, garnered so much attention. We And we've seen in the month of August alone from Speaker Pelosi's visit, the Senator Markey delegation, Indiana Governor Holcomb, Japanese diet member uh, Kuroya, who is uh, actually the chairman of the essentially the the, the Taiwan caucus in the diet, uh, Nikakon, uh, which is uh, a red you know flag issue for for Beijing um, because of the uh, sort of lobbying for Taiwan Japan relations. And now you've got Senator Blackburn, a member of the Senate Armed Services Committee, 
um, who has introduced legislation on leasing weapons to Taiwan uh, in Taipei. And so you've had one day after another, uh, another high level visit, um, all pushing back on, on Beijing's protest that this is gross interference with their internal affairs. Uh, the repudiation of our U.S. Ambassador Nick Burns's explanation of our Taiwan policy uh, being done by the foreign ministry this past week in Beijing. Um, and and yet, you know, China and the United States are still talking. Um, so despite the rhetoric and despite the exercises, um, this issue is just a, a simmering issue as Xi Jinping um, continues to prepare for his 20th Party Congress by now talking much more about his economic vision. Um, he's put down his his military strength through his exercises and his rhetoric, uh, and now he's talking once again about how he's going to double the gross domestic product of China, uh, you know, by 2035. We'll we'll see whether that comes about. But uh, all he wants to do is get his third five year term here uh, in in the fall. Meanwhile, you've got a lot of military exercises still going on in the region. You have on the Korean Peninsula, um, Ulchi Freedom Shield. This is the first resumption of major alliance bilateral exercises by South Korea and the United States since 2017, back when we had fire and fury lead to the summit diplomacy and then the stalemate in talks with North Korea. Uh, and now you also have uh, down under uh, in the Northern Territory, the biennial air exercise pitch black uh, 22 uh, for 2022. Um, you've got F-35s and hundred aircraft, more than hundred aircraft from 17 countries down there, really trying to per, uh, sort of pursue the integrated deterrence concept. I think that Secretary Austin would like to, to talk about. Um, and you have um, a lot of tensions over both, therefore, Korea and Taiwan. My essay is about don't ignore Korea, because what we're going to see out of North Korea here in the coming weeks is some kind of sharp reaction to Olshi Freedom uh, Shield, the military exercise, because they've put, on, put us on notice that that's a red line issue for them. That's hostile policy. They have to respond. They're not likely to do a seventh nuclear test in the next few weeks or in advance of the Chinese Party Congress because of weather and because of China, but we'll probably see that by the end of the year. But we will maybe see something different. Maybe we're going to see some horizontal escalation uh, a la Pyongyang, and that could be the equipment and even some uh, small-scale troop deployment to the Donbass region. And you could almost have a proxy war where South Korea starts to provide not just backfilling weapons to uh, NATO allies, but possibly more directly to Ukraine. I'm jumping ahead of the script, but the point is, uh, watch that space because it's going to be easier for North Korea to escalate uh, outside of the peninsula than on the peninsula here in the next few weeks. Um, um, I, and so, to, so, so two uh, questions, right? I mean, I want to uh, uh, the um, um, so what is the administration on the right track, and what should it be doing differently? Right? I mean, obviously, Nancy Pelosi's gambit worked. Um, she went in order to normalize visits. And there have been a rush of visits, right? I mean, so from a Beijing standpoint, this is their worst nightmare, right? It is normalizing visits. It does break a logjam. People are going. People are going and going more publicly as opposed to visiting. And then after the fact, uh, sort of, you know, on on their way out, uh, tweeting uh, that they just paid a visit, right? Um, is the administration playing this right? Does it have the right script and the right approach for what's to come? Because the Chinese are trying to move this into a blockade scenario, right? Which is our wargaming nightmare scenario. Uh, all of them are nightmare scenarios, don't get me wrong. But the blockade becomes a very difficult potential problem. Once the shooting starts, we tend, uh, you know, that's a little bit clearer on how it is we handle that. We're breaking a blockade. 
uh, right as Scott Swift says, yep. just imagine, um, you, you know, Catalina is independent. Chinese is guaranteeing Catalina's independence. And we're saying the hell you are, um, right? That's our island. Uh, and it kind of puts into perspective the nature of the challenge. Are right. we approaching this the right way? Are we thinking about the right way? Are we posturing the right way? And the administration is looking at crisis management all the time while also trying to pave the way for the future, right? Which is one of the reasons they didn't want Pelosi to make this visit right now. But but sort of walk us through what the administration's senior level thinking on this and whether we're on the right foot for what's to come and preparing in the right ways. Absolutely. Um, I would draw attention to the New York Times this past week. They did an excellent sort of infographic uh, about a blockade and, and what we saw through the exercises and what the PLA capabilities are trying to build by way of being able to both conduct a blockade and an invasion. It's based largely on the work of Phil Saunders at the National Defense University and other China specialists. It's excellent, but it also tries to isolate Taiwan as though somehow you can you can hem uh, that off from the rest of the world. Um, and it, that's sort of a way of saying strategy is contingent and we don't know what the future holds. So is the work Danger Zone, which is the brand new book by Hal Brands and Michael Beckley write, which kind of emphasizes the Davidson window that 2027 is peak fear because not because of strength so much, though, uh, but because China is getting weaker and knows that the, right. the trend lines are against them. Uh, and they're more likely to have to press down hard on this sovereignty issue here in this decade. So we don't have a long time to, to sort of play for competition with China. We have to be prepared to deter them over the next few years. Um, and I think that's gaining a lot of uh, sort of gravity in Washington and in national security thinking. Uh, it's not a brand new idea, but it is it is gathering uh, sort of uh, momentum. Um, but we don't know the answer to that. So, I mean, we got to have some humility here about trying to predict the future, whether the administration is doing the right thing or not. They're certainly um, emphasizing that we're not going to back down. And I think that is essential for deterrence, to show strength, to show, look, we're going to continue to hold what we think is the status quo, China, and we're going to put the onus on you to, to really upset that and risk your future economic goals, including your double GDP by 2035 goal, by the way, Xi Jinping. Um, so I think we are calling their bluff right now. And yet at the same time, every year that goes by at the moment, China is improving their balance of power across the Taiwan Strait. And that has to be of great concern. We just don't know how this plays out, whether it's the danger zone uh, of, of, of Brands and Beckley and the Davidson window, or whether, right. no, we're into the 2030s and it's still just a growing competition. China has more power, but maybe they're slowed down so much in economic growth that they're no longer thinking about those ambitions. Uh, and, and let me take you quickly uh, uh, to um, the question about South Korea. Yes. Um, whether it's in war games, there is almost, or at least none that I've observed, um, has the Koreans play into it, right? And there are always explanations why the Koreans will, will not be. Um, so there's no criticism right. of Beijing in the wake of the Taiwan strikes. Now we have the uh, nuclear component purchased from uh, the Russians. Uh, there was messaging there that some saw. Um, and an expectation on the part of Seoul that the United States is going to be there for them um, in the event of a, of a North Korea crisis. Um, how, I mean, we want to always see, you know, a little bit, as, as Jim said, right, mirror imaging, and then our allies will be there for us when we want them. But our allies may be with us under their own terms, in their own interests. And from Seoul's position, it appears that that interest is a North Korea interest. Um, how 
you know, what, what is it that maybe some people in Washington are missing? Uh, because I'm not asking this question for any animus toward Seoul or Korea or, you know, I'm just reflecting what it is I'm sort of hearing from people, which has been a little bit sharper uh, over the past weeks. Uh, and we've discussed it on this program, but, but yes. you know, and I know that Dove wants to weigh in this okay. on, on, on this as well, but sort of give us, give us your sense, well, Patrick, first, let me just, people missing. Yeah. Let me just build up your concern a little bit, right. Um, in, in plan to that. So when speaker Pelosi went to Korea after Taiwan, uh, president Yoon was on a staycation and refused to meet with her. Um, and then now you have on the day when the Ukraine nuclear uh, power plant is being put off the grid, their biggest plant off the grid, um, their energy grid, um, you know, you announce in South Korea that there's a $2.2 billion nuclear deal with Russia in Egypt. And so, you know, atrocious timing, um, a bad decision on Speaker Pelosi. But I can explain them both through more inexperience and also the desire for autonomy. I mean, you know, this is a major country, uh, South Korea. Uh, it's like France. It wants, you know, it wants to have autonomy, uh, even while it's committed to uh, the alliance. Uh, and I think President Yoon in particular is made it very clear he's a staunch supporter of the U.S.-South Korean alliance. The Ultra Freedom Shield exercise is proof of that. That's a resumption of a major exercise that his predecessor would not undertake. Um, his uh, doubling down on defenses, his in, seeking improvement in relations with Japan, all of these are, are welcome uh, alliance steps. But um, he also is after uh, South Korean interests. And, you know, as with Lord Palmerston, you know, there are no permanent allies, there are only permanent interests. Um, and, and, and South Korea is a major power that wants to balance its power. And when candidate Yoon uh, was running for office, uh, he was very clear that he wanted good relations with other major powers, Russia and China as well. So he didn't meet with Pelosi because he was about to celebrate the 30th anniversary of diplomatic relations with China. By the way, a very frosty celebration, uh, not much to celebrate there. Uh, in Russia, he's doing a lot of things to alienate Russia despite this nuclear deal. The nuclear deal is more about energy and economics. Uh, South Korea is building um, four plants uh, in this decade in, in South Korea, but it's actually wanting to export a nuclear power plant every year uh, in the coming decade. And it wants to be a nuclear energy exporter of power. Uh, and that's that's really the game that's going on here. And every Asian power, by the way, is doubling down on nuclear energy. Uh, so China's building 150 reactors over the next 15 years. India's building uh, 10 uh, nuclear plants in the next three years. Even Japan, which is finally a decade plus over the Fukushima crisis, is now talking about and planning to build new nuclear reactors next decade for the very first time. So there's a lot of uncertainty about LNG supplies from Sakhalin, about uh, you know climate change and carbon neutrality goals. And so nuclear power has become a big part of that. And that sort of explains the Egypt deal, even if it was very badly timed. <clears throat> so where does this leave Korea? Is it going to be with us in a crisis? Well, it depends on the crisis. Uh, on on the Korean Peninsula right now, President Yoon has rightly called for review of our contingency plans for North Korea because he wants to keep up with the possibility that Kim Jong-un could revise the idea of using nuclear weapons. Tactical nuclear weapons are part of the new doctrine that Kim Jong-un has been talking about, at least since the 88th Party Congress early last year. And that is a, that's a, a great concern because we cannot assume that what is held in the past will hold in the future. When it comes to China and Taiwan scenarios, it's trickier. It's always been trickier with Korea on this issue. Uh, it's also tricky with basically every ally over the Taiwan issue. Even Japan, which has such a strong interest in peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait, 
is not looking to be overly provocative. Uh, it just wants to make sure that deterrence is maintained, as do we. So we're all on the same uh, sheet of music, really, in terms of wanting to preserve peace, not wanting to fight war. The question is, as you point out, Vago, if you get to a war, we cross that threshold. Is Korea with us or against us? And I think I think they're with us uh, because that's where they've been in the past. I think that's where President Yoon is at the moment. A future progressive government may have a different idea, but I think right now, uh, Korea is very much on our side. Dove, I know you want to comment on this, and I have to very quickly ask you about some very weighty issues, but do it in a very quick format. First, uh, give us your thoughts, because you were in Seoul very uh, recently. Uh, yes. Uh, well, Patrick's got it right. Uh, what I would add is the following. First, President Yoon has focused on the China threat more than I, I think any South Korean president ever has before. And speaking to the defense minister and people in the defense ministry, it's clear that they now not only see China as as big a problem for as virtually as big a problem for them as North Korea, but they are talking about expanding South Korea's military presence beyond very much beyond the peninsula to demonstrate that they'll work alongside us uh, in issues that are not North Korean related. And that's only one issue, and that's China. The other point that I'd like to make is that, uh, again, uh, this goes to Patrick's very nuanced uh, assessment of South Korea. The South Koreans have already been sending non-lethal military aid to the Ukrainians, and the defense ministry there is talking about sending uh, lethal military aid. So yes, they will work with the Russians on a, a reactor in Egypt, but Moscow couldn't be very happy with the fact that the, North, the South Koreans not only condemned the invasion, but are actually putting their money where their mouth is. Uh, and uh, very quickly, we've got a couple of minutes left. Uh, talk to us uh, really quickly about the Turkish-Israel uh, rapprochement, Iran nuclear deal update, and you wrote a great uh, piece in the Jerusalem uh, Strategy Review uh, on uh, I2, U2, um, walk us through all of that really quickly in the 92nd format of it, if you could. Thanks. Sure. Uh, Turkish-Israeli rapprochement, not the first time. They, they've broken off relations in 2010. They restored them in 2016. They broke them off again. Now they're back again. Uh, some people speculate that the Turks want to build a pipeline uh, to uh, ship Israeli gas through Turkey into Europe. The only problem is they're already is the deal between Turkey, between Israel, Greece, and Cyprus on a, a pipeline. And of course, Cyprus and Greece aren't exactly friendly with Turkey. So that's pretty complicated. On Iran, uh, look, the administration is clearly moving ahead toward a deal. The Iranians are very clever, as they always are. They made three demands uh, to take the, uh, the, the IRGC, uh, the Revolutionary Guard, off the terrorist list. Uh, to stop the uh, examination of traces of uh, uh, nuclear uh, uh, nuclear traces uh, in a couple of uh, unannounced plants, uh, and finally, of course, to lift the sanctions. And so they dropped two of the demands, and it looks like they're hoping that the United States will uh, buy into this nonsense and say, well, you dropped two demands, so we'll, we'll give you in on the third. And that could be a huge problem. Um, the Israelis are pushing back, the Arabs much less so at this point, but the Israelis have been running uh, interference for the Arabs the whole time on this. 
uh, whether the administration, which we've got to remember all their leaders worked in the Obama administration and pushed for this deal, whether it'll go ahead or not, uh, is still up in the air. And of course, then there's Congress and uh, uh, ranking member McCall on the uh, Foreign Affairs Committee uh, has written a letter saying, well, wait a minute, you can't do anything because the law says you've got to check with Congress first. And right now they haven't done that. Uh, on the uh, I, I2U2, as it's called, the Israel, India, United Arab Emirates, United States, uh, people are calling it a new quad, but very much like the quad itself, uh, there's no agreement on a military threat. The different countries have different relations with Russia, China, and Iran. Uh, right now, it's really focused on high technology, but, but who knows? In the future, things could change. Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. Uh, an absolute uh, pleasure uh, to have you all on. Hope you guys have a great weekend, a great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much.